0: So let's open our Bibles to the second chapter. There's some very interesting things as we study Ecclesiastes. And this second chapter has to do with the vanity of pleasure and possessions and various other things. But after deciding that both wisdom and folly lead to suffering... In the last chapter, he now turns to the subject of uh, pleasure and uh, possessions and luxuries to see if he can find fulfillment. Solomon's insight of fulfillment and pursuit of fulfillment concerns in this chapter indulgences he indulges and he uh, the achievements he said I made great works in verse four and then possessions and wealth verse seven and eight and then then uh, great fame down to verse nine and All of these fail to bring enduring satisfaction, and really the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to show us the frailty and the futility of all things under the sun that are sought for only those reasons to uh, try to seek pleasure from them. If you accept these things that God has given, life and health and strength and the provisions of life as blessings from God, then you can enjoy them. But if you pursue them as a source of happiness, as a way to achieve happiness, then you're going in the wrong direction. Accept them as God's blessings and don't pursue them as this. Now, if I get enough this, you know, clothes, if I get enough food, if I get enough uh, possessions, houses and lands, if I have enough wealth, if I have enough uh, uh, pleasures, uh, all of these will answer my happiness. Not so. And any pursuit outside of accepting these things as blessings from God, is in vain. And you'll find the preacher saying over here, Ecclesiastes, or the preacher saying, vanity of vanities, uh, all is vanity. So let's look at verse uh, 1. It said, I said in mine heart, this is a way that he was communing with himself, I said in mine heart, go to now, in other words, think about this, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. He said, "I'm going to see if I can't find some happiness and a reason uh, for uh, satisfaction in mirth and in uh, pleasures that I might enjoy." But, the, but you know, the Bible says that the pleasures of sin are for only for a season. And by the way, the place all pleasures, whether sinful or not, are only short-lived. You know, he says, "I want to have mirth or laughter, and I want to have joy and." Uh, Pleasure. And he already comes to conclusion in verse 1, Behold, this also is vanity. And in verse 2 he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what what doeth it? What does it accomplish? He said of laughter that is foolish. You know, men have many devices to try to get satisfaction. And there's no lasting satisfaction in anything that we might imagine. So we try to find some way of getting uh, really true pursuits of satisfaction and happiness in this life. And if we look at this life only, we have no satisfaction in it. And the preacher is going to find out that all of these pursuits that he has, and we'll list several of them as we study them, that none of them bring true satisfaction. You know our Constitution says, life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit. That means when you're pursuing something, you're chasing it, aren't you? You're trying to catch it. You hope you can, you hope you can catch up with it. And it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet Jesus said, in the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew, He said, blessed are happy. Happinesses belong to what? The poor in spirit, they that mourn, those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, and go on, and on, and on. And they're links of a, of a chain that are joined together one to the other, or runs of a ladder, that you start at the bottom, the poor in spirit, and then they that mourn. You mourn over such poverty of spirit. And then you, uh, blessed are the meek, it make, makes you humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And out of humility grows a desire to know more. It says, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And it goes on and on, and you're just climbing the ladder of happiness when you follow those directions of the Lord. But if you try to follow them for pleasure's sake, or uh, possession's sake, or uh, riches, or wealth, or achievements, or various other things, you'll find that there's disappointment. Many have achieved the heights of this life that they set for their goals. And when they got there, they found out, well, you know I'm here, but did it really make me happy? No, it didn't. It really didn't. And your happiness is day by day, accepting God's blessings of whatever measure and degree they are met out to you and accepting them as gifts from God and enjoying them for the present instead of trying to make them to mean something else. So it says, I said of laughter it is mad, and of mirth what doeth it? Now then laughter is good. You know, the Bible teaches that... uh, a uh, merry spirit is good like a medicine. We're not to be sad all the time, but laughter alone, there's a lot of people that have laughter that, that really are sad. Did you know that? People laugh in their sadness. In Proverbs chapter 14, let me read this verse for you. And verse 13. It says, Even in laughter, listen to carefully to this. Even in laughter, have you seen people that put on a big front and they just act like they're having a hilarious time? Even in laughter, the heart is sorrowful. And it says, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. The end of that mirth is heaviness. You see people out, in the, in the, especially in the pleasures of this world, and the sinful pleasures of this world, they'll act like they're having the best time in the world. And deep down inside, they're lonely and sad and sorrowful, and they're trying to achieve a happiness inwardly from this outward pleasure. And it just will not work. just will not work. And uh, so, let's seek it in the right way. And then in verse 3, he says, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. In other words, I'm going to experiment a little bit and to drink moderately, because in the next state statement, he says, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, I'm going to maintain my wisdom. He had that in the first chapter, and it didn't produce happiness. Remember, Solomon was wiser than all the men and than all kings. And yet, even in his wisdom, it was not satisfaction. And so here here he says, I sought in my heart to give myself into wine, to drink in moderation. Uh, yet acquaint mine heart with wisdom. I'm going to keep a good sense about it. I'm going to keep my wisdom and knowledge about what is right and wrong. And to lay hold on folly, I'm going to even to lay hold on foolishness, till I might see, see what uh, was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I wonder if there's anything he's saying that is truly uh, satisfactory by uh, what they pursue. And if the sons of men will be pleased with these. Then he says in verse 4-6, through six, by the way, uh, of his achievements, he said, I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, palace after palace, riches and wealth, Possessions. He says, I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. It was like a paradise compared to Eden. He was trying to recreate that uh, sinless state of Adam and the joys that he had before the fall. And no one can do that. With all the kinds of planting of trees and gardens and flowers and everything, we cannot go back to that innocent condition that existed before the fall of, of man because we're all sinners. And he was trying everything. He said, if I could just return to that. And of course, we know that Solomon did have all of these things. He says, I made me pools of water, tanks and reservoirs, uh, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. He says, I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. They say that the servants born in the house were more faithful and more uh, dependable than servants that you just hired, or that came to you having to serve you. So he he says, I got me servants and maidens. And then he says, I had servants born in my house. And I also had great possessions of great and small cattle, above all that were in Jerusalem before me. You go back and you read of his daily provisions. Look in 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. It says, And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from from the river, and when it says the river, it usually means the river Euphrates, unto the land of the Philistines, and unto the border of Egypt. All of this territory that David had gotten before him, and that belonged to him now in his glorious kingdom. And he sets the boundaries of it, and he says uh, they brought presents. In other words, all these people brought presents to him. 1 Kings 4, verse 21. And, and served Solomon all the days of his life. He had all these... Uh, Various kings that brought uh, presents to him in verse twenty-two and Solomon's provision for one day. Listen at what you talk about. You and I needing provision for a day. Think of what Solomon had to provide for he and his court and etc. And Solomon's provision for one day. Listen, was thirty measures of fine flour and three score, that's sixty measures of meal. Ten fat oxen, and twenty oxen out of the pastures, and a hundred sheep, beside hearts, that's deer, and roebucks, and fallow deer, and fatted fowl. How many? One vacuum, can you imagine? How many? Ten fat, fat oxen, that's the ones that's in the stalled oxen, and the twenty out of the pastures, and a hundred sheep, harts, deer, roebucks, fallow deer, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region, of uh, on this side of the river, and Tisha even unto Asa, over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. This is a figure of speech with Israel. Every man dwelt under his own vine and own fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, from one extent of the kingdom to the other. And so he's saying that Look at all of that that he had accomplished. And you could read and research and go into Kings and Chronicles and find where he had these gardens that he's talking about, these reservoirs, and the glory of his kingdom. And Jesus even refers to Solomon's kingdom. He says that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these what, lilies. Behold the lilies of the field. He says that Solomon all of his glory, with all of his possessions, was not arrayed like one of these. So it shows us that all of that does not bring satisfaction, doesn't it? It says in verse uh, 8, back in our text, chapter 2, verse 8, I gathered me also silver and gold. Remember, he made ships to go. I think in 1 Kings 4, let me see. I believe it's the next, the latter part of the chapter. No, it isn't. It's in uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, maybe. I'll find it. Well, anyway, I guess I missed it. But anyway, he speaks of making ships to go to uh, Ophir for gold. And I probably got it right under my face, but, uh, but I can't see it. But you'll find it in the Kings there where he speaks of all the... And he made these ships to go and fetch gold and bring it back. And here you have gold and silver that he had and peculiar treasure of kings. By the way... Solomon actually did go get the gold. And another one later on, he made ships like Solomon did to go for gold, and the ships were bro- broken in ezion Gibber, it says. They were broken. This shows you something. There might be a lesson in this, that what Solomon did to get his gold proved successful. But then what another fellow did with good intentions was unsuccessful. He tried to follow a good example, the one that made the ships that were broken in the harbor, but it didn't work. So sometimes, even though you try to follow a good example and have good intentions, you better carry through with your plans to make it successful. You can't just start and say, well, you know, he had an idea, and if I'll follow that idea, it'll work for me. It may work for you if you'll carry it through. But if your ships just stay there and they're never launched out into the sea and they never take their journey, never take their uh, trip, and never go after it, you're not going to get the gold, are you? So uh, anyway, back in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Verse 8, I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of the kings and of the provinces. I get me men singers and women singers. And the delights of the sons of men, this this is his harem, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand. That's too many, isn't it? Anyway, by the way, he only had one son, so it wasn't a sexual thing. It was just for the honor and glory of having so much and having all these uh, different ones uh, bring tribute to him and to compromise. That's all it was for. So, we find that... uh, He had all these, and he had uh, the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments, and that of all sorts. In verse 9, he says, "...So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired I kept not from them." In other words, I went overboard to get anything I wanted. "...I kept not from them, I withheld not my heart from any joy." Remember, he said, I'm going to seek joy, I'm going to seek pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was was, uh, my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works of my hand, that my hands had wrought, and on all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. What did he mean? After he had accomplished all this, he tried mirth and joy and pleasure, and dabbled in this and that and the other. And he had all these possessions and he had everything going for him. He had more than the heart could wish. and want. He says, when I examined it, it was all like vanity and vexation of spirit. Vanity means meaningless. It all was meaningless. And vexation of spirit means like uh, chasing the wind. Chasing after the wind. You can't hardly catch the wind. You may chase after it, but it's there. You're not going to catch it, are you? The wind is invisible. It's that phantom that eludes you. You cannot catch it. It's sovereign. It goes. You know, someone says, I see the wind blowing. No, you don't see the wind blowing. You see what happens when the wind blows. You see the trees. You see the sand and the dirt. You see the weeds going, the grass and all. But you don't see the wind. The wind is an invisible force. And that's what you're chasing after when you think you can get for, uh, uh, find pleasure in all these earthly pursuits. We need to go back and, and examine a little bit. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept. That's verse 10. Look at it. Kept not from them. He had every means of gratification. It promised the good, but it did not satisfy. Happiness does not come from the situation which we're in, but only through the Lord, and only through God's promises and God's blessings. And that's what he found out when it was all said and done. He says in verse 11, Then I looked on all the works of my hands that my hands had wrought, and on all the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Now look at verse 12. He says, I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? What is what he saying here, I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. He saw that it's preferable to be wise, but it will not make us happy. You may compare. He says wisdom is better. Wisdom is better than madness and folly. He says, For what can the man do that cometh after me, after the king, even that which hath been already done. The end of the wise and the fool. Even that which hath already been done, he's no better, he can do no better than the king had done himself. In verse 13, he says, Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly. He says, I learned that wisdom is better than folly. As far as light excelleth darkness. But then what happens? Verse 14, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. Well, I'd rather walk in, in light than in darkness. But he says, And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Eventually both meet death and are forgotten. Death comes to the wise man as well as the foolish. Have you ever seen people go through this life and they'll just prepare for everything, for uh, old age, for every aspect of life, make every provision? And there's someone over here that that has prepared less and the end of their life seems to be just as well as that person that's made all this preparation. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be thoughtful about it. And it doesn't mean that we should neglect our duty and our responsibility to prepare for the future. That's our responsibility. But sometimes in the providence of God, the person over here that hasn't prepared any more than you have is going to be just as well off. So death will eventually come to the wise and to the foolish alike. It's going to come. So you better count your blessings while you have them. And you better continue to do what is right in the sight of God and, and uh, try to do your proper preparation, but always accept them as blessings from God and for no other reason. He says in verse 14, Then I, the wise man's eyes are in his head, and the, but the fool walketh in darkness, and I myself perceived also that one event, Happened to them all. Verse 15 says, Then said I in my heart, As it happened to the fool, so it happened even to me. Everything's going to happen. And what why was I then more wise? Why did I, why was I more wise if the same thing's going to happen to me, as happened to the fool? He says, Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. He says, This doesn't even make sense. That I've tried to use my head, I've tried to use understanding, I've tried to make provision, I've tried all these things. But he says, it's still vanity. It is still also vanity. Verse 16, For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten, and how dieth the wise man as the fool. You see, death is a great leveler of all mankind. That old grim reaper is going to come to one and all alike. You and I better be thankful for God's provision. You know, when, during this cold, and I feel so sorry for people that do not have shelter and protection. I've, I've been praying for them the last two or three days, and it's cold out on the streets in various cities. That some way or another, they'd find a place to get in and out of the cold. They'd find uh, uh, shelter and protection from all the elements. From the elements, but on the other hand, when I sit in the house or I go in the inside of the house, and it's nice and warm, and I have my wife, and, and the comforts of home, i tell you, it humbles me a great deal. And it should you. It should make you so humble that you say, God, I thank you for a roof over my head. I thank you for clothes on my back. I thank you for some food that I can put on the table. And I'm telling you, a lot of folks are not thankful enough for these blessings. They're, not, they're just not. We just take them all for granted, but it makes us mindful, especially this time of year when there are so many people in need. And we should be mindful of those that do not have the necessities of life. And then, verse seventeen, he says, "Therefore, I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. All of it's worthless, and all of it's like chasing the wind. He had his riches, but it does not make." You know, he had all the riches. It does not make me truly happy, he says. He says, I can only enjoy the fruits of it for a short time because I'm going to die just like a fool. I must leave it all to others who will possess it after me. Look at the next few verses. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the Son because I should leave it unto the man, verse 18, that shall be after me. Well, if it's his son, fine. Family? Heirs? But you know, sometimes the ones that are after you, the things that you've left, they do not realize how they... How you came by them, and the labor and the sweat and the blood and the tears you put into accomplishing and to having what you have, and it's just thrown away or counted as nothing. And that's what that's what was worrying Solomon. That's what was vexing him. He says, yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun. Why did I work so hard? Why did I work my fingers to the bone, as they used to say? Why did I go ahead and do what I did? Uh, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me, and it's not necessarily the one close. Sometimes it's left to others. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. That's a sad situation, isn't it? Now, if you've got a family that you can leave what you've earned to, and you know that they appreciate it, and they understand what you went through to to accomplish what you did or to to save up a little bit of money or to pay for a home or a, a, a few possessions or whatever you own and you leave it to them and they say, well, you know, mother and daddy, they worked hard to get what they're leaving to me. Well, that, that's a blessing to a father or a mother to know that, that their family appreciates what they put into it. But if you have a rebellious son or... Someone in the family later on that says, well, I'm just going to throw it to the four winds and, and you left it all to them and what you took a lifetime to make in six months it's gone or less. That's sad. And it is sad. And this is what saddened the preacher. Solomon, Ecclesiastes It says, uh, this also is also vanity. In verse 20, I want you to notice. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took unto the sun. In other words, I completely despaired the futility of labor, leaving the results of my labor to another just made me uh, full of despair. Verse 21, for there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it. For his portion. See? A man that has wisdom and knowledge and equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein, is not wise and is not knowledgeable, shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22. For what um, what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? Riches are a blessing or a curse. They can be either one. To a man. Wealth. Possessions are a blessing or a curse. And we'll get to the secret of it in a moment. It says, Wherein he labored unto the sun. Verse 23, For all his days are sorrow, and his travail, grief. Yet his heart taketh not rest in the night. In other words, he can't even sleep at night for worrying about what's going to happen to what he has made. This is also vanity. He is so taken up with the fact that all his labor under the sun and all that he's done seems to have been done in vain and it really worries him in the night hours. See, it says day and night. Look, notice, it says uh, in verse uh, 23, For all his days are sorrow, he thinks of it during the daytime. And his travail grief. Then it says, Yea, his heart taketh no rest in the night. He worries about it in the night. It's not going to be appreciated. It doesn't amount to anything to anyone else but me. And then it says, This also is, is also vanity. Verse 24. Verses 24-26 through 26 shows us something that we need to consider. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. When he sought to find his blessings from God, instead of trying to find them in his pleasures, in his riches, in his wealth, in his labor, in his wisdom, what did it say? This is also... this. Also, I saw that it was from the hand of God. We must actually try to realize that all the pleasure, all the enjoyment, all the blessings come from God. No one can truly enjoy the things of this life without divine blessings. You have to have God's blessings upon it. There's no enjoyment apart from God in anything. And it says, for who can eat or who else can hasten thereto, hereto, more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in His his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner He giveth travail to gather and to heap up, that He may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. In chapter three it says, "Everything has a time. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under under the heaven. Everything has its time. Man cannot resist the ebb and flow of life and things of time." All life must be viewed as tentative. It's just temporary. And he states two extremes. A time to be born and a time to die. Can you imagine him blurting out or coming out instantly and say, there's a time to be born, but there's a time to die. Well, you know, he could have said there's a time to be born, there's a time to live a long, happy life, and a time to die. But he goes to the two extremes to show us how tentative all of life is. He brings the... Start of it and the end of it, so close together, for a purpose, to help us to see that we cannot change times, we cannot change the time of birth or death, any more that we can change as he starts out, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to harvest. You can't change the time to plant something, can you? When it's time to plant wheat in the fall of the year, if you have winter wheat and a summer harvest, you have to plant it. If you wait till spring, it's too late. You Can't plant it. It won't grow. You can't make this crop that year. See, so there's certain things that have their certain times. And then if you don't plant it in the right time, you will not harvest it in the right time. In fact, there will be no harvest. So he says a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Then he says a time to kill and a time to heal. What does it mean a time to kill and a time to heal? There's damaging and restoring. A judge may order an execution or a soldier may go out to battle in war. And the wounds of war have to be healed. Look at what happened 1941, December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Shortly after that, I entered in the Navy at the age of 17. When the war was over, what did we do? We turned around and healed the wounds of hundreds and thousands of people lost on both sides. And now, one of our friendliest countries, I suppose, is Japan. It's pretty hard to forget, though, for some of us. But on the other hand, you have to heal. And it says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. You have to tear down something, build it up. A time to weep, there's a grieving process, and a time to laugh. You can be happy about certain things. A time to mourn. And a time to dance, to celebrate with joy. A time to cast away stones, uh, and a time to gather stones. Gather stones together. What does it mean, cast away stones? The old way of protecting a city was to—they had the stone throwers. They said that they had engines that could cup a in the hand of this engine a 300-pound stone and throw it for a quarter of a mile. And we talk about them not having any inventions in those days. It's pretty simple, but yet it's pretty strong, isn't it? Take a 300-pound stone and throw it for a quarter of a mile with some mechanism and leverage. I'd say that's pretty good engineering, Moselle. And that's way back in the Old Testament. In the days of the kings and the kingdoms fighting with one another. But anyway... We're going with this. It's time to cast away stones, and then it's time to gather stones. They had to gather them if they were going to fight again. And a time to embrace, and a time uh, to refrain from embracing. You have a. It may even speak of a warm embrace for uh, friends or for family. There's a time to hug one of your family. And there's a time that you do not do that. You have other things that you have to do. doesn't mean you resist having embracing, but there are other things besides that. And then it says, a time to get and a time to lose. There's a time to go out and get and prosper, and there's a time to lose. And it says a time to keep and a time to cast away. That's that's pretty good. There must be a time to cast away. We keep everything, don't we? I mean, people uh, during the Depression... All of our, uh, most of our uh, family, some of our family have gone through a depression. And we look back to their way of doing things and I mean they wouldn't throw anything away because they didn't have anything to throw away. And if they got something, they sure were not going to throw it away. And we, we say today, we call them a pack rat, don't we? And I'm just as guilty as any of you. But on the other hand, there comes a time that some things become obsolete. And what are you going to do with them? Just keep them and keep on keeping them? If they have some sentimental value, I'd say keep it. But if it doesn't have any practical value or any sentimental value, and it's absolutely obsolete, and if no one else wants it, it's about time to get rid of it. That'll clean out some of our storehouses won't it. And I'll tell you, we sure need to do it. Every time I start, you know, my wife will say, we need another place to store something. And I'll think, well... You know, I, every time I build one, I get it full, and then I'll start and I'll build another one. And when it gets full, it's time to build another one. And you know, I think the Lord had the best. He said, It's not good to store up in barns. Isn't it? And it really isn't. Uh, we have things, of course, that are of sentimental value, and all of us do, that we just hate to turn loose up because so and so gave it to us. And we remember them by it, and it's good. And I'm sure all of us have possessions like that that we just will not part with. But there is a time to what? Keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. Here's extremes in life. Notice this two extremes a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he labor? Is there any profit in it? What profit? I have seen the travail which God had given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Necessity drives us to earnest toil that we have to work. In other words, when we get hungry and when we need something, we're going to, necessity will drive us to that from time to time. And then it says, uh, something else. It says, uh, I have seen the travail which God had given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. We find that men, uh, a man that is a sinner, has to be exercised in, and he has to be judged in his uh, sinfulness. So all the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in has a purpose, and God has a purpose. You know, the love of money is the basis of all passions if we desire just to make money for the sake of making money. In verse 11, he says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time, well done in harmony and beauty. Also, he set the world in their hearts so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Someone says that... It, when it says, also He has set the world or eternity in their heart. Not just this world, but the world to come in our heart. And then it says in verse 12, I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also, that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. We should make use Make good use of all that God has given. Make good use of it. And we'll go right on down quickly and close. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. He's made everything in reference to eternity. Everything of this life is in reference to eternity, if we see it in the right way. It says, nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before Him. We should fear before the Lord. And it says, that which hath been is now. And that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. You know, only God can bring the past into the present. He can bring the past into the present. That which hath been is when is now, and that which it, which uh, is to be has already been, and God requireth that which is past. And moreover, I saw uh, under the sun. The place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. There may be times when justice is turned upside down, but God in due time, with his guiding principles, will make everything right and turn it around in due time. Look at that. I saw that under the sun, the place of judgment, the place of judgment where judgment was to be meted out, he says, wickedness was there. We see that in the courts of our land today, don't we? We say, that's not right. We say, that's just not right. And even in our civil, in the little community type, civil things in the, in the community. We say, well, that's not right. There's no justice in that. And it says, in the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. And then the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So it seems like it's all turned upside down, doesn't it? But what happens? God in due time and according to His principles will straighten out all these things that are turned upside down. Remember, they accused the apostles. They went about preaching the Word and people were being converted and saved and baptized and it. Uh, becoming members of a local New Testament church. And what happened? They said, these men have turned the world upside down. No, they were turning it back right side up. It was already upside down. They were turning it like it ought to be. And you and I cannot always do or what we would like to, but in it, there's a time. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. There's going to be a time He'll change things. And uh, for there is a time uh, there, there for every purpose and for every work. A time when God will... Judge all men and all things and make all things right. We have just a few verses and we'll close. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God uh, might manifest them or test them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Those who abuse the power, God is going to test them. And look in verse 19. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them As one dies, so dieth the other. They all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all his vanity. Let me stop there a minute. Just give me a few minutes, let me give you this. With respect to the mortality of their bodies, animal life is the same in both man and beast. And you know, you have a group of people that go around telling you today that when you die, you're just going to be like a dead dog. Well, you are in a certain sense. Now listen, and we'll get the rest of it in a minute. Don't jump the gun. Our body is going to decay. You put the body of an animal in the grave and he's going to in a, under the ground, or whether he's not, it's going to decay, isn't it? But there is a difference. It says all go into one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. That's the body. But look at the next verse. And by the way, that's exactly where your cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, so to speak, will stop. They won't read that next verse? No way, form or fashion. You know why they won't read the next verse? It exploits their error. It reveals their error. Because the next verse tells you that there's a difference between man and beast. Look at it. Who knoweth the spirit of man? Don't the spirit? Here's a proper distinction. The, the spirit means the breath of man. The sons of Adam. A proper distinction is made between man and beast. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward? The immortal spirit of man, the sons of Adam, that goeth upward because he made it. Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And here it says, the spirit of man that goeth upward. Now look, and the spirit of be- the beast that goeth downward to the earth. So when the beast dies, his life, it's, that's it. Friend, I hate to disappoint you, but there's no dog heaven. But there is a man heaven. There is a heaven for man. And it says, and here it makes the distinction. And don't you ever let that cultish group get you stumped on this and just say, oh, that's all there is to it. And say, look, fella, let's read the next verse, please. Just continue on. And you read the next verse and it puts an end to that business of when a man dies, he's like a dead dog. His body's going to be gone, right? But his spirit is going where? Upward to be with God. Who gave it. And it's going to return to God. And he's going to be with the Lord. As the New Testament gives us fuller revelation of what happens when we die, this body does go back to the dust. But our spirit goes to be with God. And we immediately leave this house and tabernacle of clay. And the Bible says to be absent from this body, and that is true, is to be present with the Lord. We sang a song a little bit ago, God Leads His Dear Children Along. And I used to sing it after...